Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. One of the most hotly debated issues in climate policy is the value of the social cost of carbon, which is an estimate of the damage that will come from releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. The social cost of carbon is a useful measure to help us to understand the price we should put on carbon today, such as through a carbon tax, to limit carbon dioxide emissions and the climate-related damages that future generations will face. The value of the social cost of carbon is debated in part because it will bring added costs to certain parts of the economy, particularly those reliant on fossil energy. In addition, Projections of future climate damages are, by their very nature, uncertain. On today's podcast, a climate economist will talk about how the social cost of carbon is calculated and the many factors that economists take into account. My guest is Gilbert Metcalf, a professor of economics at Tufts University and a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research. His work focuses on taxation, energy, and environmental economics. Gib, welcome back to the podcast. Good morning, Andy. Great to be here. You know, I thought we could start out just with the basics. Could you tell us a little bit about the social cost of carbon, what it is, and why it's such an important number? Sure. Well, as you said, uh, it's a social cost of carbon is a measure of the societal damages from releasing one more ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And just for context, what is a ton of carbon dioxide? So that's essentially burning a half a ton of coal for electricity or the amount of gasoline that a typical driver uses in four months of driving. And we care about that because the damages aren't reflected in the price we pay for, uh, for uh, filling up our gas tank or heating our homes. And so policy is a way to, uh, and particularly a carbon tax or cap and trade, is a way to include that cost, those damages, in, in, the, in, in our purchases of, uh, and use of fossil fuels. Can you illustrate, uh, in a broad sense, the types of future damages that we're talking about here? Well, we're talking about things like increased mortality rates due to more frequent, very hot days. We talk about the fact that temperature increase might go up two or three degrees Celsius, which doesn't seem like very much, but that does translate into more persistent, extremely hot spells and, and, and with it, uh, increased mortality. There's the loss of productivity. Think about farm workers and other people working outside, uh, crop damage, damage to homes, businesses, uh, and other infrastructure from more frequent and severe extreme weather. Things like Hurricane Harvey in Texas a few years ago that dumped 48 inches of rain in, in Houston, Texas in 24 hours. And then there's things like the increased cost of, of coping with these hotter, uh, hotter days and more extreme weather, what we call adaptation. So storm proofing, use of air conditioning, hardening our infrastructure. These are all costs that society has to bear that aren't reflected in, in our use of fossil fuels. And I imagine a lot of these these uh, damages we're talking about, we're assuming what these damages are, right? Because they're in the future. We can't know exactly what they are. Well, we actually are getting a, a, a clearer sense because we are experiencing the impact of climate change right now. 
And so scientists and economists are, are getting much better at, at uh, sort of measuring what they are rather than just sort of making model assumptions. But it's true, what we don't know is how, how much hotter it is going to get in part because the science, we're learning every day more about the science of climate change and we're not quite sure what the policy response is going to be. Now, the actual dollar value of the social cost of carbon has been very much, you know, very hotly debated. The Obama administration calculated the social cost of carbon at about $50. Uh, the Trump administration's social cost of carbon estimates have been much, much lower than that. Why is that? Right, they're down to about a dollar. Uh, and there are really two big uh, uh, changes in, in the approach that they took uh, that led to that dramatic drop. The first is, that they focus only on domestic damages. The Obama administration in their approach said, this is a global externality. Uh, our emissions are impacting people around the world just as their emissions are impacting us. So therefore we ought to think about this from a global perspective. If you focus on domestic damages, and the reason the Trump administration does that is because OMB regulatory uh, analysis sort of guidelines say focus on domestic damages for, for typical regulations. Of course, uh, climate change is, is an atypical kind of, of, uh, of a pollution problem, so it's not clear you, you, you want to follow the guidelines in that respect. But be that as it may, if you do that, that's going to cut the damages uh, uh, to about one-seventh. So that gets you from $50 down to about 7 or $8. And then the other thing that they did was they used a, a much higher, uh, what we call a discount rate, which is essentially the, the interest rate we use to, to uh, convert future damages into today's dollars. And they went from, uh, increased it from uh, uh, the central estimate in Obama was 3% to 7%. And that's gonna cut the damages uh, to about one seventh of what they are again. So that's gonna get you all the way down uh, to about $1 a, a ton. So basically, the higher that, that discount rate, the less money needs to be invested today for future damages. Is that correct? Well, the less that we would value those damages in the future. So one way, here's the way to think about it. If we think about a million dollars of damages in 250 years, because keep in mind, greenhouse gases persist for a very long time. Uh, a million, the, how do we think about those damages in 250, uh, 250 years? A million dollars is about $600 if you discount it at 3%, but it's only a nickel at 7%. So it's a huge difference. Okay, so how is the social cost of carbon calculated? Well, the typical approach is to use what are called integrated assessment models. And I actually have a, an article in the June issue of Scientific American where I sort of walk through how we use these models, how they've been used historically, and how they were used by the Obama administration to come up with the social cost of carbon. And the way the models work, these are models that combine uh, a model of, of the carbon cycle, a model of the economy, as well as the damages uh, from, from increased emissions. Uh, the most famous one is the DICE model that Yale economist Bill Nordhaus developed for which he got the Nobel Prize uh, in economics a few years ago. And these models, the way they, they, they use them is they pulse the model. In other words, they, they add uh, one more ton of greenhouse gases, say, in, in 2020. And then they compute the damages in each of the years going forward for two or 300 years. 
take the prison discounted value and add those up and you get a, a dollar estimate. So what is today's accepted value for the social cost of carbon? Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, if, if we talk about the value, and uh, uh, first off, it's going to differ for different years. But, so let's take 2030, a decade from now. Uh, if you look at the Obama uh, uh, cost of carbon uh, estimates from their last estimates in 2016, or if you look at Bill Nordhaus's estimates, you get about $52 a ton. Again, if you look at the Trump administration, you get a buck a ton. I don't think uh, anyone really uh, uh, takes the Trump numbers seriously who are, who are seriously looking at, at, at climate change. Uh, and I think mainstream economists, by and large, would view the Obama estimates, the $52 a ton number, or even Nordhaus's number, as a lower bound. Uh, and I say that because what we've seen looking at these numbers over the years is that the estimates are growing as we're getting better at measuring damages and, and including in our damage estimation some factors that simply we weren't able to, uh, to incorporate in, in, uh, you know, in years past. Now, in your new article in Scientific American, you, you spend quite a bit of time talking about uh, three important inputs uh, that are used in the calculations with the integrated assessment models. Uh, one of them, the discount rate, we've already spoken about a little bit, but could you please give us an overview of these inputs? Right. So as you say, the discount rate is, is a key one. Uh, the second one is... Uh, what is the, the dollar measure of, of damages? And as I uh, hinted at, we're getting better and more inclusive at capturing all of the damages or more of the damages. Um, but one of the problems, uh, and, and there's much, and there's a lot to be hopeful there because I think there's, there's an, an amazing amount of work being done by uh, uh, great economists around the world to measure damages. I think it's really the new frontier in economics and, and climate policy in measuring damages. A another issue is, is that there are certain scientific parameters uh, that are hard to pin down that affect damages. The key one is something called equilibrium climate sensitivity. This is a number that tells you how much we expect the global temperature to go up if we double our greenhouse gas emissions. And I think scientists, uh, if you ask them what that number is, they, the central estimate is going to be uh, roughly three degrees Celsius, meaning a, a doubling of greenhouse gas concentrations would uh, increase temperatures by three degrees. But there's a wide range of, of estimates of that, and it could be lower, uh, but it also could be quite a bit higher, as much as six or, or even more degrees higher, uh, in which case uh, the damages would be much, much greater you know, for higher values of that, of that parameter. You know, one interesting thing that, that, that goes on here is if you look at uh, estimates of the social cost of carbon, say, from a decade ago, those estimates are significantly lower than they are today. So it seems that the social cost of carbon keeps going up uh, over time. Why is that? Well, that's true. And I think part of that is, is we have a better understanding and measurement of damages. But I think there's, there's a couple of other factors. And, and, and I should also mention that, that the... Uh, the third sort of great unknown is how should we treat catastrophes, which are an extreme form of damage, because uh, these are events that are, by definition, extremely unlikely. So it's hard to know how to model them in an integrated assessment model. You know, you could do what are called 
Monte Carlo simulations where you where you do thousands of runs and with different values of parameters drawn from a distribution. But the very nature of a catastrophe is it is so unlikely that you could do thousands of runs and may never get a catastrophe showing up in your in your realizations. So you get, you know, what how did Nordhaus address that? Well, he just simply did this rule of thumb and, and uh, increased his estimate of damages by 25%. No particularly good reason for doing that, other than he just knew that his number was too low. So, so why is this number going up? Well, well we're, we're getting better at measuring damages, but there are two other things that are, that are driving the, the increasing number. Uh, one is that we have a better understanding of the carbon cycle and, uh, for example, the DICE model in, in its iterations over the years, um, as, as Nordhaus has improved his, his representation of the carbon cycle, that has driven up uh, the, the, the social cost of carbon quite a bit. And the other thing is, is that the economy is simply uh, growing more rapidly than, than uh, has been predicted in, in years past. And with a larger economy, you have larger opportunities for damages. There is a great deal of uncertainty uh, regarding the discount rate that should be used to calculate the present value of future climate-related damages. This discount rate is often framed in moral terms. Why is that? So just to reiterate, we care about the discount rate because damages last far into the future. And the lower that discount rate, the more we're going to value those damages and the more action we want to take today. So where do ethics come in? Where, do moral, uh, where does morality come in? Well, there are three key elements in the discount rate, and two of those really do reflect ethical considerations. One of them is something called the pure rate of time preference. It's the jar economics jargon. It's, it's the rate at which we want to think about the well-being of people today versus the well-being of people in the future after we've controlled for the state of the economy and how wealthy they are. And some argued, and Lord Nicholas Stern, the British economist who led the Stern Review, uh, this, the, 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 the exhaustive sort of study of, of, of what we know about climate change about a decade ago, uh, Nick Stern would argue that we should use a purated time preference equal to zero, which effectively means you should treat future generations precisely the same as current generations. And that's, and that's completely an ethical argument. Uh, there's nothing that economists can really uh, opine to, to sort of give guidance uh, on, on that. It's, it's something really more that philosophers can, can, can say something about. So using a pureated time preference of zero is going to help drive that discount rate down. The second element is how do we think about uh, valuing a dollar of damages to a wealthy person relative to a poorer person? And there's a, there's a, a, a parameter called the elasticity of the marginal utility of consumption which is a lot of jargon for how do we think about taking a dollar from a rich person and giving it to a poor person. And if we think that that's welfare enhancing to a great deal, then that's going to lead to a lower discount rate as well over time. So those two elements really reflect ethical considerations. The third element is simply how much do we think, how rapidly do we think income is going to grow over time? Uh, that certainly comes into play for thinking about how do we value 
spending money today to reduce damages that will affect richer people in the future. But, but the growth rate of, of income is really uh, is just a purely economic consideration. That, that doesn't have an ethical dimension. So some economists have said uh, that the integrated assessment models uh, that we've talked about, which are used to calculate the social cost of carbon, that these models are useless, okay? And that's because there are just so many uncertainties around the assumptions that they rely on. What's your view on this? Well, I think we want to be careful what we how how we interpret what these economists have said. And, and Bob Pindyke at MIT is one of the leading economists who has taken this view. And what Pindyke has argued is that the integrated assessment models are useless for the purpose of coming up with a number for the social cost of carbon. So he would not say that they're useless in general, but they're useless for that particular purpose. And the reason is, is that, is that it, it, it provides this veneer of certainty and sort of scientific rigor when there is all this uncertainty. Um, and, and I think uh, my response to that is that, well, we, we got to come up with a number somehow. Uh, and and Pindyke has not come up with a satisfactory uh, alternative. And I think we can use integrated assessment models. Uh, they're a useful tool for for uh, as an input for, for the number we come up with. Uh, I totally agree with them. We shouldn't take these estimates as gospel and as, as certainty, but we should recognize, and we should recognize that they're based on our imperfect understanding of the world. But having said that, they're based on our understanding with the information we have today. We'll, we'll update that information. We'll update the models with new information. Uh, and we just need to recognize that our estimates today may be too high or probably more likely too low. But uh, I think they are helpful uh, as sort of a starting point for coming up with that number. The other thing I'd say about integrated assessment models, and I think Pendike would agree with me here, is that even if you take a strong position that they're useless for the purpose of calculating a social cost of carbon, they can be extremely useful if you want to know what's the right trajectory of tax rates that would get us to, say, net zero emissions by 2050, for example. So you can use them for uh, determining how to set tax rates if you have a goal, whether it's an emission reduction goal or maybe a revenue target. Um, so, they're, so they're helpful in that regard. You know, it's interesting you bring up that issue of tax rates. And the next question I'd like to ask you relates to that. How do we understand the correlation or the relationship between a certain carbon price or a carbon tax and the actual extent of carbon dioxide emission reductions? Well, we start from the basic premise that demand curves slope down. And if you raise the price of something, we're going to use less of it. So let's just start with sort of basic econ 101. Uh, but then the question is, well, how much do they go down? And here we've got sort of two approaches we can take. One is to do uh, the kind of modeling that integrated assessment modelers have done, as well as, as uh, general equilibrium modelers like Mark Hafstead at Resources for the Future, working with Larry Goulder at, at uh, Stanford. They built very um, detailed models of the, of the global or U.S. economy, which are calibrated to uh, our understanding of parameters based on statistical analysis of data. And what you, you can use these models to determine what the impact of these uh, of various carbon tax proposals would be. So, for example, 
uh, Mark Hafstead, working with uh, other researchers and resources for the future, suggests that that one proposal from the Climate Leadership Council, which would levy a $40 per ton uh, tax on our emissions, that would cut emissions immediately by about 18% and cut them in half uh, by 2035. So how, how realistic is a, uh, a carbon tax set at the social cost of carbon, particularly given that we've never seen a carbon price anywhere near that high in the U.S.? Well, that's a good question. And that's really a question for uh, Capitol Hill watchers and political scientists. But I will just note that that the um, $50 price is pretty darn close. And in fact, is essentially the starting tax rate in seven carbon tax bills that have been filed in the U.S. Congress this session. So I think what we're seeing is that the, that the Obama era social cost of carbon is, is a focal point for legislators. And just to give some context for that, since people don't think in terms of dollars per ton of carbon dioxide, uh, a $40 per ton tax rate is translates into 38 cents per gallon of gasoline and something on the order of two cents per kilowatt hour of electricity. So it's a, it's not a huge increase, but of course, none of these, none of these tax bills uh, uh, would just leave the price at 40 or $50 a ton. They would have it go up over time. So I think, I think it's, it's the, the price is realistic. I think the, the greater challenge is, is getting a tax enacted, period. Uh, that's that's the hard sell, and that and that would be hard to do whether you're talking a tax rate of ten dollars a ton or a hundred dollars a ton. Just to get over that hurdle is going to be really huge. I think the actual price, the uh, initial price in whatever legislation eventually passes Congress, is is less the issue than the very fact of having a carbon tax. Well, it's interesting, as you note in that in the article, the new article uh, in Europe, some countries have managed to to implement some fairly aggressive car carbon price numbers. Is that right? Well, that's right. Uh, I, I I detail these in my Scientific American article, and what you see is that uh, you've got uh, Europe's carbon taxes can range as high as one hundred and twenty dollars per ton of carbon dioxide. Uh, the median rate of the 15 countries with carbon taxes is 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 $19 a ton, and um, uh, so we've seen carbon taxes there. We also have the example closer to home, which is the the province of British Columbia, has a uh, province-wide carbon tax, which uh, today is at uh, $40 per ton, $40 in Canadian dollars. So let me ask you this, and this is one of the, the, the key questions that people often think about when they talk about you know, anything that has to do with a, a price on carbon. It, what are the economic and employment impacts that you would expect from a carbon tax that, that truly reflects the social cost of carbon? Well, we know we have enough data now that we can actually do empirical uh, analyses as opposed to rely on models. And so... Uh, if you look at my analysis of British Columbia's province-wide carbon tax, uh, and if you look at analyses of the carbon tax in Europe that I've done with Harvard economist Jim Stock, what we find is that there is a negligible impact on GDP or, or uh, aggregate employment. In fact, many of these models uh, suggests that you could actually get a modest positive impact on employment, given the fact that you're taking the revenue from a carbon tax and recycling it through the economy. 
So I think the answer is no big deal at the aggregate level. Uh, we will expect, and we and we have seen, and there's a, a great study uh, looking at jobs in British Columbia uh, uh, by an economist, Yamazaki, uh, that 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 indicate we are definitely going to get shifts in jobs away from the fossil fuel industries and from carbon intensive industries towards the non-carbon intensive sectors. So we're going to see big shifts in in, in employment. Uh, we know that we have tens of thousands of jobs in wind in the United States and hundreds of thousands of jobs in solar energy as documented by the Department of Energy. So I think part of our job as part of the job of policymakers is not only to set a price on emissions, but to help with that transition away from a carbon intensive to a, a carbon free economy. All right. So Gib, so, so where does public opinion come into play in terms of implementing a carbon tax? What's striking is that polling that's been done by uh, Yale University uh, researchers, along with colleagues at James Madison University, uh, they find that a majority of Americans support the Climate Leadership Council's fee and dividend approach. And strikingly, even uh, an even stronger majority favor uh, a carbon tax with the revenues used to, to, uh, to cut taxes. But to be clear, uh, there is an ideological split here. Um, independents and Democrats strongly favor this approach, uh, but less than a majority of Republicans support it. But, but I think that's quite remarkable that you're still getting somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of Republicans who are saying we should be doing these sorts of policies, too. So final question for you, then. Uh, how do you actually go about implementing a carbon price? So there's a lot of good work that's been done here, and I should start with the Willie Sutton maxim. Willie Sutton, of course, being the bank robber who was asked, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, that's because that's where the money is. <laughs> he actually didn't say it. A, a, a journalist made it up. But, but be that as it may, the Willie Sutton maxim says, look, most of our, of our greenhouse gas emissions come from burning fossil fuels, creating carbon dioxide. So that's where we start. And it's easy to do. You can piggyback on existing federal excise taxes. Uh, so the administrative uh, overhead is quite low to do this. Um, so that's the way to do it. Gib, thanks very much for talking. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Today's guest has been Gilbert Metcalf, professor of economics at Tufts University and a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research. Keep up to date with research and news from the Climate Center for Energy Policy by subscribing to our monthly email newsletter on our homepage. And you can get immediate updates by subscribing to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 